everybody. Welcome to the X Report. I am Raven X, and alongside me, as always, is Biggie, aka Ethan Tate, aka somebody who I am sure is hoping that the Memphis Grizzlies are able to pull out a victory tonight in Game Three versus the Timberwolves. How you doing today, Ethan? I'm good, man. I'm uh, I'm looking forward to tonight's game. I'm definitely gonna be tuned in, and I'm expecting a W. Me too. I'm definitely hoping out they can pull out a win. Speaking of pulling out wins, we got to talk about this Debo Samuel drama and how it's all unfolded, how we got to this point, and if the 49ers can really risk losing him. In addition to that, we're going to talk about the Kyler Murray drama, which seems to kind of go under the radar with so much receiver shenanigans taking place. And of course, with regards to the NBA, we're going to look at the NBA playoff picture and where things stand, as well as take a look at the NBA award finalists and the talk to players that we agree should be there and others we do not. But before we get to any of that, please should check out the xreport.net. I repeat the xreport.net for exclusive sports content written by yours truly and fellow export writers. Previous episodes of our lovely podcast and our YouTube channel entitled The X Report. So to kick things off, we're always plugging stuff. And the most recent thing that um, we worked on for the export is the 2021 NFL redraft. That's when I take a step back, look at the 2021 draft, and say what I think teams would do differently had they gotten the opportunity. So, Ethan, I'm going to pose you a question. So, looking back at this past season for the Titans, um, in the first round, you guys drafted Caleb Farley. He ended up tearing his ACL, didn't get to see much of him. So, if you had a chance to do it again, who would be your first round pick in the draft? Oh. Uh. Being honest, I think I still would ride with Caleb Farley simply because it's always ACL, so we really don't know what we got, what we have in him. It, I think it's different if like he played the first season, and we actually got a lot of on-field production. But seeing as how he didn't get that much time, I think I'm still willing to ride, ride it out with him just to see what we actually have. I can dig it. Um, me on the other hand. I would I would go in a different direction. Odafe was great. I really am excited to see what Rashad Bateman is going to be able to do in his career. But as everybody knows, Baltimore was ravished with injuries, particularly in our secondary. Now, I'm not saying that bringing in a corner would have put us in the playoffs, but I think it would have definitely made our defense, or at least our pass defense, not the worst in the league. So if I had a do-over, I would bring in cornerback Pat Sertan. I think that when healthy, he would help give Baltimore arguably the best cornerback group in the league. And then even with the injuries that took place last year, I think that he would have helped us be able to stay afloat. But continuing on with cornerbacks, we got to show some love to Stephon Gilmore, who after an extended free agency period, signed with the Indianapolis Colts on a two-year $23 million deal. And after his signing, it made people question if the Colts actually do have the best defense in the league. Um, joining Gilmore will be joining other studs such as Darius Leonard, DeForest Buckner, Yannick Ngakwe, who they acquired via trade earlier this offseason, and Kenny Moore. Now, I'm sure neither of us think that they do have the best defense in the league, but overall, how much better do you think the Colts' defense is done with this move? I think they got, they um, tremendously got better. Um, I think you had in a, a corner like that for you, know, like, I don't think he is the defense player that you really got to play that he was a couple years ago, but he's an upgrade. Excuse me, and he's also a guy that, um, that He's a game changer, so I think that you add him to our defense. I definitely think he can have them in the top ten. So already, in my opinion, the top, uh, lower top ten defense. So I think that it'll be somewhere within the five to two range. Yeah, I agree with you. I think that honestly, I think that they would benefit from getting another outside corner. As we know, Rocky Asin got traded. Uh, Xavier Rhodes is still a free agent, so putting somebody alongside Stephon Gilmore, and then you, as you mentioned, you got great guys like Buckner and Leonard in front. I think that they have a chance to really entrench themselves in that top seven range, if that. Um, I just think it really just comes down to staying healthy because one of the problems with the Colts is they don't have much depth. If they can add a little bit more depth with the draft and everything, I think that they can really do some damage. All right, so speaking of doing damage, I mean, Baker Mayfield is truly in damage control. As we talked about last week, he did an interview with the YNK podcast discussing his feelings about the latest uh, Browns drama, where he thinks he ends up, and all that jazz. One of the teams that possibly could be interested in him are the – 
uh, Carolina Panthers, who, as we all know, incumbent Sam Donald has not been that impressive. However, that does not mean that everyone is looking forward to that move. Uh, Panthers uh, Instagram fan page made a post saying that, per Ian Rappaport, the most likely landing spot for Baker Mayfield is the Carolina Panthers, to which wide receiver Robbie Anderson was seen commenting, no. That's pretty embarrassing. So, Ethan, in your opinion, Baker Mayfield or Sam Donald? Personally, I think Baker's better than Sam, but do you think that it'd be a noticeable upgrade in Carolina if they were to make that move? Um, me personally, I think I still will go with Baker. They both are very similar. They're inconsistent, but I think that um, when you get Baker, if you're able, like they already have receivers in place. The big thing that I would have to say with Baker is, is if you get him, I don't see you making that move for, to trade Christian McCaffrey like everyone assumes that they're going to do at some point this offseason. Because when you have Baker, I think you do need to establish a running game. And just to give him more, uh, just to give him more protection. And, and he's a great, I'm not going to say he's a great, but he's a really good play action passer. So I probably personally would say Baker because, um, in the case of Sam Donald, he hasn't shown that he can really win. At least in Baker's case, he's shown that he can at least lead his team to the playoffs. Yeah, I was I would agree with that. I don't know if I'd say Baker was really instrumental in that playoff run, but at the very least, he can say he has fielded a team that has made the playoffs. Um, the same cannot be said for Sam Darnold. I think that when you look at Baker Mayfield's career as opposed to Sam, I mean, Baker's best year is better than anything Sam Donald has done. And I think that since coming to Carolina, I don't think he has the same excuses that he had when he was in New York with the lack of talent or injuries, et cetera. I just think that Sam Donald really isn't that spectacular of a player. So I think that if they're able to get Cleveland to eat up some of that contract, why not bring Baker in to compete? It may be a bit interesting having two former uh, first top three picks from that 2018 draft class in your quarterback room. But I think that when comparing what you get with Baker to what you get with these rookie quarterbacks, I think that if they're looking for a more immediate solution, I think Baker is the better option. But let's go ahead and move on to Colin Kaepernick, who has been very vocal in the past few weeks. As we know, he's um, participating in some workouts with uh, current NFL players, got to have a bit of a showcase during Michigan spring game, and most recently did a had a sit-down interview with the I Am Athlete podcast where he talked about his desire to come back to a game. To the game. Here are a few quotes from him. Um, if I'm not good enough, get rid of me, but let me come in and show you. Another statement, I have unfinished business on that front. Uh, I have been to the Super Bowl. We were one play away. Well, I need to finish that. And another, if I have to come in as a backup, that's fine. But that's not where I'm staying. One thing I can say is I respect Cullen's uh, persistence and I respect his confidence. But I just, even still, on the one hand, I have a hard enough time seeing that a team really sign him. And an even harder time thinking that he's going to lead his team to the playoffs and potentially to the Super Bowl. I just, I just think he's asking for a bit too much here. Um, I agree in the sense like I don't think anything come back. For one, I think it would be incredibly difficult to still get signed. And I agree with you. Like I think it would be hard for him to come back and potentially lead a team to the Super Bowl or even the playoffs in that matter because it's like. How long has he been out of the league now? Three or four years? I think the last time he played was 2016 or 17. It's been a minute. So, yeah, like, bro, you're, um, you're obviously older. Yes, you haven't taken the beating that a lot of these other guys have like, since he went to play. But you haven't, got, you haven't received that time reps. And we have, like, the NFL, just like the NBA, they're both leagues where, like, with each new year, you're getting better and better athletes to step step in um step into those roles. So you can say like, hey, I think I can lead a team to the playoffs, but it's like, have you faced a we just brought up a great defense. Have you faced a team with the Stephon Gilmore, a Darius Leonard and a DeForest Buckner? You haven't. You've been at home. Yes, you've been working out. Yes, I'm pretty sure you're in incredible shape, but it's different than stepping out on the field. Taking those hits, having to read those coverages, and honestly, 
reading coverage is when you ask me where playing. So I have to say I'm in agreement with you. Yeah, and it's like it's nothing against Cap. Like I feel like personal feelings aside, because his protest and everything he stands for, I agree with a hundred percent. But looking at it from a purely football standpoint, I mean. We both have seen it. We both have witnessed questionable quarterback play. But, I mean, I'm sure you would take Ryan Tannehill over Colin Kaepernick, who has not played in six, seven years. Hell, I would take Tyler Huntley, who had to start the latter half of the season because Lamar got hurt, over Colin Kaepernick just because they I've seen them play, you know. And then I'm not expecting Colin Kaepernick to come in and just immediately be ready for game speed because you can be in shape all you want to, but that's different than being in playing shape. And as you mentioned, he hasn't taken those hits. He hasn't gotten the opportunity to play against these new level defenses that are much more faster and more talented than what he faced before. So because of that, yeah, I'm in total agreement. You like, I don't, I don't really think it's going to happen. But the last team that Colin Kaepernick played for was the San Francisco 49ers, and the 49ers are going through quite a lot of drama as of late. This past week, a lot of questions were being asked about other fellow young uh, wide receivers and if they would be getting traded or potentially getting new deals, such as A.J. Brown, D.K. Metcalf, and uh, Harry McLaurin. But instead, Debo Samuel has completely taken over the conversation as it has appeared as of yesterday that he has requested a trade from the San Francisco 49ers. Now, multiple reports have come out about why this could be the case. Um, Tom Pelissero reported that the trade request actually happened a couple of weeks ago. He wants to be a receiver, not a receiver running back. He wants to play somewhere else where he can potentially tack on more years to his career. Um, Another interesting instance was money is not the root of the issues for Devo Samuel. Otherwise, that could be fixed with a big offer. But there are also issues about his usage. So it's a lot of things going on. So let's break it down piece by piece. What made Debo Samuel so terrific last year, I think we can both agree, was his ability to be, quote unquote, that wide back and be used in such a different variety of ways. But do you think that long term playing a position like that would be detrimental to his career? You're going outside of offensive linemen, running backs receive the most contact in the game of football. Wide receivers, they don't receive that much. They receive contact, but not nearly as much as a running back. I mean, we say it all the time. Running backs have a two to three year lifespan in the, in the, in the NFL. So you, now you're looking at him and you're asking him to, even though he won't be, he isn't a full-time running back, but you're asking him to play a predominant role as a running back and as a receiver. Like, he's definitely going to have his career kind of reduced or um, changed significantly if you ask him to continue to play that position. I mean, we saw he took a lot of hits when he played, when they put him in that running back. Yes, he, um, he was a big-time playmaker at that position of the wide back role, but for the detriment of his career, I think he's making the right decision by saying, like, hey, I don't I don't want to do this anymore because I want to have an extended career. And if you're not able to, um, if you're not able to just accept it, that I don't want to do it, then I'm going to have to go somewhere that it is. Yeah. I mean, I think you're totally right because, I mean, we've seen players who take less contact get injured. And then, as you mentioned, like with you playing wide receiver, you're taking nose hits and you got running, you're taking steps out of the backfield. That's going to be very painful as well. And injuries can definitely accumulate like that. And so from that standpoint, I understand. But then it just kind of begs the question of, let's say Debo was strictly a wide receiver. Does that taint some of his value? Like, in your opinion, do you feel like, let's say Debo just strictly plays wide receiver, that wide back stuff, done, not happening anymore. Do you feel like that makes him a bit less valuable to teams who potentially would want to trade for him? Oh, definitely. Because I think the thing of it is, he, um, his greatest value was the fact that he was versatile, the fact that he was able to carry the ball out of the backfield and line up as a wide receiver because when he was a wide receiver, yes, he was a dynamic player, but he wasn't, in my opinion, if you solely line him up as a number one, as a wide receiver, he's not a number one wide receiver. He's a number two. But the thing that's supplanting him this season as like a superstar caliber, caliber talent was the fact that you could line him up as a receiver, 
line him up at running back, and he was able to make plays. Debo Samuel, in my opinion, is more of a playmaker, an overall playmaker, than he is a wide receiver. But if you just subject him to just being a wide receiver, you take away some of his playmaking capabilities because you're only putting him in one particular role, and you also have to depend on the quarterback to get him the ball. Yeah, no, I totally agree with you on that. I mean, he did have 1,400 receiving yards, which I know – I don't remember the specific placement – but I know it was top five, which is great. But a lot of those plays came on those unconventional passes. Typically came because he was setting up and worried. Teams were worried about him running the ball in the backfield, which allowed him to get open. So, yeah, I agree with you. So, how much money would you say that Debo Samuel is worth? Because, of course, money is a factor. As of right now, the highest paid wide receiver is Tyreek Hill, who's going to make an average of 30 mil per year. Um, then through the top 10, there's uh, Brandon Cooks, who makes 19.8. So essentially about almost 20 mil. So let's say we're getting strictly wide receiver Debo Samuel. How much money do you think he's worth a year? Uh, I would say he's worth a That's a steal considering other cats who are making more than that. But, I mean, I get it. I mean, if you're losing, I think what helped make him so special was his playmaking ability. And so I think that once you get just strictly wide receiver Debo Samuel, I mean, we see that he's not as – I'm not going to say he's still a great player, but there are better strictly wide receivers. So I feel you on that. I think he'd still get at least 20 mil. Um, I don't think I would put him more over 25 mil, which is like a big reason why I wouldn't want Baltimore to trade for him, just because with the recent – uh, wide receiver contracts, I feel like that man's going to get banked that I probably would not want to give him. So I'd probably have to pass on that. But all right, so last question. 49ers, you look at this team, I think that you take Debo Samuel and his production off the offense, they don't make the playoffs. So in your opinion, do you feel like the 49ers can really risk trading him? Um, I think they can risk him because I think they've already established that they're willing to be in a rebuild season, a rebuild time period. We know that they're already, that it's already been, and probably still continue trade talks for people to get Jimmy G. And I think once you made the decision to go with Trey Lance, and you just lost your offensive coordinator, you're going to be in a season, you're going to be in a period where you're rebuilding that offense. So maybe they can, they can lose, they can, they can, um, and granted, he's a young player, but they can sustain losing him. Because, like, hey, we don't know who they're going to bring in. I don't know if they've already replaced the offensive coordinator, but we don't know who they're going to bring in as the offensive coordinator and what type of offense he runs. Because maybe the reality is they're bringing an offensive coordinator, and maybe Debo doesn't necessarily fit his offensive scheme. So then you're going to have a guy that you're not able to get top level production out of because he doesn't fit your scheme. So I think they can. Um, from a fan standpoint, I think they can lose him because. You lose Jimmy G, you lose Debo. The only real weapon you have left is George Kittle. And the thing with George Kittle is he's an off-injured player. So from the from the team standpoint, I can see it if you're thinking about rebuilding. From being a fan standpoint, it's like, bro, we literally only have one weapon. What are we going to do? Yeah, and I mean, you and I discussed, you know, from the fan standpoint, Loki, not Loki, Hockey, I want him to leave just to kind of spite 49ers fans who are sending him the death threats and racial slurs, which we didn't even really get into. Um, so I kind of want him to spite them, be like, screw y'all. But on the other hand, I mean, let's be honest, man, with receivers, the, the price tag on them is going up quite a bit. And I feel like if they, even though they seem willing to pay Debo what he wants, which I mean, rightfully so, I mean, he was their best player last season. You kind of have to factor that in, like other contracts you have coming up, other decisions you may have to make. I mean, Nick Bosa has got a deal coming up. And namely, you know, with pass rushers, he's, he's going to make quite a bit of money. Um, so when looking at Debo, it's just like, if I'm the 49ers, it, it just begs the question of, do I feel like I can get back to the NFC Championship? If I really, if they're in their heart of hearts, they feel like they can go back then I think that they have to do whatever it takes to make Debo happy. But on the other hand, if they feel like we're a friends playoff team, might not be where, might not have as much success as we did a season ago, then I think at that point, I would be willing to cut my losses. I think at that point, I'd be willing to be like, you know what, screw it. I would trade him, get him, get back into the first round and then draft a guy who I felt like could give me the same amount of production. Because, I mean, looking at this year's draft class, there are versatile players. There are guys in this team 
who could really do some damage. And, I mean, look at guys like Traylon Burks, who that was pretty much his bread and butter at Arkansas. Maybe you could bring in a guy, trade depending on what draft pick you get, um, a Garrett Wilson or a Chris Olave, guys like that. I feel like in this draft you can find some uh, talented wide receivers who would give you similar to the production that Debo got, even though it won't be exactly the same. But all right, let's all right, let's go ahead and move on to believable or buffoonery. Keeping things in the NFC West. We talked about it a little bit earlier, but Kyler Murray, it just seems like the drama has been following him quite a bit in this um, offseason. For example, um, it was reported just a few days ago that the Cardinals have yet to make a contract offer to Pro Bowl quarterback Kyler Murray. Of And while other teams are monitoring the situation, um, the Arizona insists that they're not going to trade him. However, reports are coming out that he is not going to be attending. He is pretty much going to be holding out until he gets that new deal. I'll be honest with you. I think Kyler Murray is talented, but I don't think he should be a part of the $40 million a year quarterback club. So it begs the question, the car believable or buffoonery, the Cardinals should cut their losses and trade Kyler Murray. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, like I mentioned, I mean, I don't think that Kyler Murray should be a part of the 40 mil club. I just don't. No disrespect to him, but I mean, if you look at the other quarterbacks who are in the club and you look at their accomplishments, you see Kyler Murray. And Kyler Murray, as you mentioned last year, at the start of the year, he looked like the MVP. He looked terrific. But then he suffered that ankle injury. DeAndre Hopkins went down, and he didn't look like the same person. You don't believe me? Just watch the wild card game against the Rams. It was a terrible outing. And I feel like if he really wants the money that he thinks he's going to get, it wouldn't be from me. And I think that if I'm Arizona, of course you don't want to start over with the quarterback, especially because this current quarterback class leaves much to be desired. But I think that it's better than going ahead and play, trying to play phone tag with the quarterback who you don't even know really what his potential is. You don't know how motivated it is. You don't under, You don't really know the type of leader he's going to be in times of adversity, which is something that has been something that's really been ragged against Murray throughout his career. So if I'm Carolina, I mean, not Carolina, if I'm Arizona, I mean, there's plenty of teams who need a quarterback. I'm sure I could get a one and then some for Kyler Murray, and then we'll try it again with someone else. Uh, speaking of quarterbacks, let's be honest. Justin Fields, going into his second year with the Chicago Bears, has not exactly been given many favors throughout his time, so much so that Connor Orr of Sports Illustrated had this to say. Fields or any player in a less-than-ideal situation should be given the chance to work with the NFLPA to request a different assignment. This would force teams to maintain more of a consistent competitive spirit or, at the very least, be more open with their fan base about their path forward and offer promising players some sort of back-end protection. So, this is definitely an interesting concept. So, believable or buffoonery, Justin Fields should request a trade from the Bears. Uh, I'm torn because this is a big part of me that said, that wants to say yes because the, the um, Chicago Bears are a really bad, badly run organization. But it's also a part of me that says no because it's like, hey, bro, as a professional athlete, you can't pick and choose where you play. It's a reason why this team drafted you. And it's also been um, – there's also been players that had to go through rough patches and then they come out of those rough patches. So I think for the question in at hand, I'm going to say no, because I think because Justin Fields, yes, he's a promising young talent, but he didn't show, he had flashes, but he didn't have a great rookie season himself. He had an average 
in my opinion, rookie season. So I'm going to say no, and I think he needs to go through his growing pains and kind of ride it out with their franchise at least. And then once you, you know, once your contract is up, then you can be like, hey, I can go. I want to go where I want to go. Yeah, I'm in agreement with you. Um, I would say no. I think that, as you mentioned, it'd be one thing if Justin Fields was just lighting it up, doing a great job. He didn't look that good. I mean, not many players for the Bears not named Roquan Smith, Robert Quinn, and David Montgomery did look good last season. But, I mean, it's not like it's not like he was helping the situation. And I think that we kind of look at – we look at adversity as a bit of a cop-out. Like, we have seen several rookies start in a situation that was not great, and then they were able to turn things around. Like, throughout – for example, Joe Burrow is a perfect example. Rookie season, terrible offensive line, team winds up with another high draft pick. They can't protect him. Defense really can't stop anybody. It's bad. Next season, they help him out. They bring in nice pieces. He takes him to a Super Bowl. I think that in if young players every season were like, yo, this isn't working and I just want to leave, that takes away the competitiveness of it. Like, don't you want to be a part of the turnaround? Because then it's going to get to the point to where anybody who feels a grievance, whether it be a first-round pick like uh, Justin Fields or a dude in the fourth, fifth round who hardly gets to play, run into the NFL PA trying to get things changed. No, I don't think that that's the best course of action. I think that if every NFL team would be was good, there wouldn't be a need for high draft picks. I mean, you're going into these situations, you're getting picked early because these teams have work to do. So you should expect to have to do the work. So as of right now, no, I don't think that it – that should be the case. But all right, last question before we move on to the NBA. Um, Denzel Ward, cornerback for the Cleveland Browns, joined the $100 million club after signing a five-year, $100 million.5 extension, including $71.25 million fully guaranteed, making him the highest-paid NFL cornerback in history. While questions may arise about whether or not he was overpaid, it seems that a lot of premier cornerbacks including Marlon Humphrey agreed to the deal and said I'm happy for any cornerback to get paid second hardest position in the NFL behind quarterback do not try to debate with me of course people are going to debate and have their different opinions but believable or buffoonery cornerback is the second hardest position in the NFL I'm in agreement with you. I think cornerback, people underestimate how difficult it is to be a cornerback. I mean, we always talk about how great these receivers are and how great these offenses are. Well, somebody's got to try to defend them. Somebody's got to try to be there to shut it down. And, I mean, that's why there's so few great cornerbacks out there. You know, we talk about the Tredavious Whites, Marlon Humphreys, Jalen Ramsey's um, of the world. Jair Alexander is another one. And Denzel Ward, I would say, is top 10. But other than that, like, I'm sure most football fans can name more great wide receivers and great corners because it's incredibly difficult to set yourself apart and be that guy. So, yeah, I'm going to say buffoonery on – I mean, I'm going to say believable on that. 
And I think that it kind of brings up a good point that Jalen Ramsey had made a while ago um, when we were seeing how much money these receivers were signing for. And he was like, so why should we not get paid more considering we have to try to stop them? And I think he has a great point. But all right, let's go ahead and move on to the NBA. Ethan, playoff basketball, baby. Top three takeaways from what we've seen through the first few games. Um, Top three takeaways are – Phoenix Suns might be in a little trouble. I don't think it'll be this round in particular, but I just saw that I think Devin Booker has a um, where I just saw it. I think he has a grade A hamstring strain, mm-hmm. strain, and he might be out one to two weeks. So that's something that's going to be difficult to overcome. Number two, um, and I know a lot of people might have over might be overreacting to the Boston Celtics beating the um, Knicks in game one and game two. They have had a tremendous defensive strategy against KD and Kyrie. Mm-hmm. But um, it's it's hard to say a playoff series is over until both teams play away from their arena. Like, the Celtics haven't played in Brooklyn yet. You, they did their job by protecting home court. I think the real... Like, the playoffs for them is going to kick in, I think, tonight when they play, if they play at Boston tonight. No, they play yesterday. Mm-hmm. So, the next game in Brooklyn, that's when the playoffs really is going to kick in for the Brooklyn Knicks. I mean, for the Boston Celtics. And um, the the Utah Jazz, like, I think that if the Dallas Mavericks stick around and then they're able to get Luka back, I think this might be the last that we see of that Utah Jazz team assembled the way that it's been assembled before. Low-key, I feel like that may happen regardless, barring like a championship. But, yeah, I definitely feel you. All right, let's talk our Mamba players of the week. This was hard. I mean, there were quite a few guys who were vying for this spot. But out of the Eastern Conference, I'm going to go Jason Tatum. I mean, reason one. Kobe Bryant, one of the things he's most synonymous for, game winners. You look at game one, in addition to already having a terrific game scoring over 30 points, Jason Tatum made the game winning shot to secure that game one victory. And then he also put the final nail in the Nets' coffin last night during game two. So I'm going to show some love to Tatum. Uh, for me, I'm going to show some love to another person that hit a game winner. I'm going to show love to Joel Embiid. He hit a game winner last night against the Toronto Raptors. And he's just. He's been his normal self, being the most dominant and skilled and second most skilled big man in the NBA. Can disagree with you there. He was definitely that uh, conversation. All right, Western Conference, another tough one. But I'm going to show some love to a guy who does not often get it, and I'm going to go Jalen Brunson, guard for the Mavericks. I mean, we talked about it. We thought that somebody was going to have to step up with Luka being out of action for an undetermined amount of time. Well, Jalen Brunson absolutely did that, completely carried the team um, in game two against the Jazz, dropping 41 points in 42 minutes along with eight rebounds. Helps secure game two victory for the Mavs. Shout out to him for stepping up when the team needed him the most. Um, I'm also in agreement with Jalen Brunson because with the absence of Luka, somebody had to step up and carry their load. And we all assumed that it was going to be Jalen Brunson, but for him to respond in the fashion that he did in game two, that's very mumble-like because he honestly put the team on his back. 100%. All right, let's go ahead and look at the current playoff picture. Let's start things off in the Eastern Conference. Miami Heat up. um, They had a pull blowout victory over the Hawks game one, 115-91. Interestingly enough, scored 115 against the Hawks again, 105. Clint Capella apparently is going to be out possibly for the remainder of the playoffs after suffering a knee injury. But, I mean, you and I talked about it. Neither of us thought this series was going to last long. You think the Heat pull off the sweep? Oh, yeah, I do. I think that it's hard because I think that the Hawks, they came into it with injuries, and they also were already outmatched without the injuries. Mm -hmm. And I think, um, if I'm not mistaken, Clint Capella is still out. And if he is, that's that's a huge blow for them because he – on offense, he's a rim runner and a live threat, and that's something that – um, Trey Young plays play um, utilizes to a great degree, but defensively he's been a defensive anchor for them for a long for a couple of years now, 
And I just think that the case of it with the Heat is like they they can do the one thing to Trey Young that a lot of people don't do is they play they play Trey Young incredibly physical. Mm-hmm. He and he doesn't he's not the type of player that he embrace he doesn't embrace physical play and it kind of hinders him and that's what they've been doing to him all season. Mm-hmm. I mean our series so far. So I think it's a sweep. All right, let's go ahead and move on to the Boston Celtics leading 2-0 on the Brooklyn Nets. We know great game so far. Game one, Boston wins 115-114. Second game, Boston Celtics defeat the Nets 114-107. We always talk about Kevin Durant being such an offensive stalwart, but last night he got put on an island, could not really get anything going against the net. I mean, against the Celtics, despite dropping 27 points, he shot a rough, um, I think it was what, 23% from the field. If you are a Nets fan, are you concerned about him getting it together? Or do you think it's just a matter of time before he gets back on track? Um, I think when you have a player the caliber of KD, he's going to, He'll figure a way. He'll figure his way out. But I think the difference in this series is that the Boston Celtics—they're a defensive team that also have scores that are capable of matching Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving bucket for bucket with Jason Tatum. As you've seen, like Jason Tatum and Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown have had really good games these past these last six games. But the thing that the Celtics are doing is they're playing this, like, hybrid man-zone coverage. And it's hard because you're, like, you're for, they're literally forcing KD and Kyrie to get the ball out of their hands and letting other people beat them. And that's something that um that's a formula for success. But the thing of it is, is, like, it can work, but as a, as a head coach, you, have, you now have that on film. So now maybe you can figure out some actions that can, um, you know, that can, that can um, counteract it. Like maybe instead of just solely giving KD the ball, KD and Kyrie the ball in their hands, maybe put them in some motion, move them off a couple screens, put them, put it in other people's hands, and they get them the ball in motion and let them come off of like pin down and flare down screens. But I think that. The Celtics and their defensive strategy is definitely something that's been a, a beautiful thing to see so far this series. Most definitely. I'm sorry, keep going. No, nah, I was going to say, did you ask me who I predicted to win? Um, We both had Nets. You still riding out with Nets? Uh, I actually think the Celtics might pull it out. That would be cool. That would be very interesting. All right, let's go ahead and move on to a different series. The Milwaukee Bucks and the Chicago Bulls are tied at one game apiece last night. That was last night, I believe. Uh, the Bulls pulled out the 114-110 victory over the Bucks, And after shooting 6-25 in game one, DeMar DeRozan said, that's not happening again. And he proved himself right, dropped 41 game two, shot 51% from the field. Ethan, I know you and I both mentioned we both think the Bucks pulled out, but is there a chance that DeMar DeRozan could carry the Bulls to a upset? No, okay. I don't. I think um... – Last night, Giannis had a very um, – he had a very pedestrian game. He had an un-Giannis-like game. They, they played him really tough. They played physical defense. They You had guys that stepped in that stepped in and took charges on Giannis. They made, the game, they made it really difficult for them. But I don't – and I don't think that they're going to carry it to winning the series. I still have the Bucs winning that series. Yeah, same for me. All right, let's talk about the 76ers owning a 3-0 lead over the Raptors, something you and I really weren't surprised by. Um, as we mentioned, for game one, 131 to 111. Game two, 112 to 97. And then in overtime, as you mentioned, Joel Embiid hit that game winner 104 to 101 to beat the Toronto Raptors. While we both know that this is pretty firmly in control going the Sixers way, Somebody else on the team has really stepped up, that player being Tyrese Maxley, who Kyle Kuzma made some interesting comments about saying that if he was Philly, he would be his number two option as opposed to James Harden. Looking at the games so far in the playoffs, Maxley has, let's be honest, outperformed 
outperformed uh, James Harden last night. They both dropped for 19. As we remember, um, James Harden fouled out the game before, dropped 23, 9, and 8. And then game one dropped 38, I believe, making history as one of the youngest players to drop over 30 in a playoff game. So, Ethan, in your opinion, should the 76ers look to utilize Maxley as a scoring option before James Harden? I think it, I'll put it like this. I think they should have it as an option depending on the matchup. Because the thing of it is, is James Harden is probably more than likely always going to draw the attention of another team's best perimeter defender because he's James Harden. Yeah. And also the thing that James Harden can provide outside of scoring is he's a really good playmaker. Like he's good at setting up his teammates to make shots. And this play, this series, he hasn't really put up that out like those outrageous scoring numbers that we have seen him do at least in the regular season at times so I think maybe run, running some action for Tyrese might be a good decision I'd agree with that. I think that in looking at what Tyrese has been able to do, I think he's kind of that guy who, I think like you mentioned, you know, everybody's putting their best defenders on James Harden and then of course you know about Joel Embiid but Tyrese Maxley kind of sneaks up on people because people seem to forget how good of an offensive weapon that he is so I think that as you mentioned the best bet to do that with is just focusing on the matchups all right let's move on to the Western Conference and you touched on it in your takeaways but D-Book is going to be out at possibly for the next two to three weeks with the grade one hamstring strain that is the last thing you want to hear if you are the Suns especially because it looks like the Pelicans are really trying to fight in this series so I know you mentioned that you're not that worried about the Suns but do you think that let's say D-Book is out for the rest of the series how much would you, of a chance would you say that the Pelicans would have to pull off the upset I still give them 40 percent because I think that they might steal another game but I think Phoenix is still going to close it up yeah, I agree. I think that Chris Paul and the rest of the team will be able to figure it out. Um, but, I mean, nobody can deny that the Pelicans, I mean, right now they're riding the momentum. They won game two, and I'm sure they're going to want to continue it. Speaking of winners of game two, the Memphis Grizzlies tied the series against the Minnesota Timberwolves. Timberwolves won game one, 130-117. to uh, Memphis bounced back in a big way, 124-96. to Game three is taking place tonight. And it should be a good one, even though it's going to be in Minnesota. We both said we got Grizzlies, but what Grizzlies team are we going to see? The team that's going to blow Minnesota out, or is it going to be a much more competitive contest? I think it's going to be a much more competitive contest simply because this is Minnesota's first playoff game, first home playoff game for this series of the playoffs. I think the last time they had a, a playoff series in Minnesota was maybe 2015, 2016. Well, Jimmy Butler was there, and I think that they're going to have an amped-up crowd. And one of the things that, that they, they said is, like, the playoffs aren't – the playoffs don't officially start to a home team loses because more times than not, you get your role players play better at home because they have their crowd backing them up and they have their energy from the crowd. And I think it's going to be a situation – Similar to that, where like the Timberwolves are probably going to play some really good basketball, and they might win, but I still think that the Grizzlies, I think the Grizzlies are going to put it out because they have, they made adjustments. They also have a couple rotational pieces that they can use to kind of um for like mess up what Minnesota likes to do, especially on offense, like we saw Game Two. They had they brought out Xavier Tillman out of the um out of the closet and he was a good he was a good option given with his mobility and things of that nature. But I think it's gonna be a closely contested contest. Yeah, I feel you on that. Let's go ahead and move on to the Golden State Warriors versus the Denver Nuggets. Warriors hold a 2-0 lead over the Nuggets. Game one, uh, Warriors won 123 to 107. Game two, 126 to 106. So let's be honest. They got a cool death lineup nicknamed PTSD, a.k.a. Jordan Poole, Klay Thompson, Steph Curry, and Draymond Green. As of right now, do you think that their lineup is the best of all the playoff teams? Uh, I'm going to say... Uh, I'm 
going to say no. I think it's a really great, it's a really good lineup, but I think the flaw of it is, is I think the the thing that makes it bad is like that who outside of Draymond and Andrew Wiggins, though the other guys they aren't capable of defenders. If you have if you have them in a matchup where they actually have to guard somebody, what is that going to look like? Because I know Clay, he has a reputation as a good defense. He's had a reputation as a good defender, but since he's been back from injury, he hasn't been the same level of defender that he was before pre pre injury. And we also know that Clay, there's still he he he's a better defender than people give him credit for. But he, he can also get a bucket scored on him. And Jordan Poole isn't that great of a defender either. But the offense is their lineup is great because of the uh, the offensive capability. So I'm going to say I don't know what team that I think has the best lineup. But I, I don't think that that's it. I think it's really good. It's a really good lineup because it forces you to uh, it's, it it presents a lot of matchup um difficulties because if you want to play big, then you just throw that big into a pick and roll with Steph or Jordan Poole like they did against Denver in Game Two, and Jordan Poole and Steph were blowing by Nikola Jokic and Aaron Gordon, so. I'm going to say for right now, I'm going to say they're second. I think I would have to, in the Western Conference, looking at the remaining playoff teams, I don't, there's nobody I could put ahead of them. Like, in just in terms of like just being the most dangerous right now, I think I'd have to go Warriors. I think on the Eastern Conference, I'd probably say the Celtics have a case just because their defensive prowess is what's making them so effective. And then you mentioned earlier, like with Jason Tatum, he can score blow for blow with some of the best guys in the league. That's hard to really go up against. So I think the biggest competition will be the Celtics, in my opinion. But as of this very moment, I got a hard time going against the Warriors. All right, last matchup, we got a tied series. Dallas Mavericks and Utah Jazz tied at a game apiece. Utah won game one, 99-93. Dallas won game two, um, 110-104. to Game threes tonight, who you got? Um, I think that I think the Jazz are going to pull it out again. I think that, granted, they have a lot of dysfunction on their team, but I still think that they have the better overall roster because you have a guy like Mike Conley who has tons of playoff experience. You have Donovan Mitchell who, in my opinion, met with Luka out. He's the best player in that series. And granted, the only thing that can um that can kill them is the defensive mismatch that is Rudy Gobert. Because if you put if you go small ball and you put Maxi Cleaver at the five, you might get a repeat performance of what happened last game where he hit like eight three. Because Rudy Gobert is so um he's so used to playing that drop coverage and just staying back and clogging up the paint and protecting the paint that you're leaving a very capable shooter wide open. And it's like, man, I don't know that many NBA players that you can leave wide open and they don't make shots, regardless if they're a good shooter or not. But I still think the uh, Jazz will pull it out tonight. Yeah, I'm agreeing with you on that one. I think that, I mean, we saw what it took for the Mavericks to be able to pull out that performance. That's asking a lot to expect Jalen Brunson or anybody else on the team to be able to bring out another 40-point performance. I think that defensively the Jazz are going to be able to make adjustments, and I think that they're going to pull out game three. All right, let's go ahead and look at the NBA award finalists. As we already know, Marcus Smart was named the league's defensive player of the year over other finalists, Rudy Gobert, and uh, Michael Bridges of the Phoenix Suns. So before we get to the criticism, in your opinion, how do you feel about that? Do you agree with that choice? Uh, I'm going to be honest. Out of the people that was up for the award, I agree. Fair. Now there's a player who was not listed as a um, finalist, and that is Bam Adebayo, who felt that the reason why he was not named a finalist is because the Heat lacked media coverage, and TV time. He said, it's disrespectful. I feel like I can do anything that two out of the three can do. Besides, I mean, I can't teach height. But they all three play on TV more than me, so I would expect that. They got more TV games and they got more exposure. People like to talk about them more. Don't nobody want to talk about us, so it's whatever at this point. Now, if you ask me if 
if Bam was in it, I would have picked him to win Defensive Player of the Year over these other cats. But do you feel like the lack of TV time for the Heat played a role in him not being listed as a finalist? I mean, I can buy it because, you know, they aren't, even though they were the best, they had the best record in the East this year. Like, a lot of people were kind of like, they weren't really paying attention to the Heat. Like, the Nets had a lot of the focus. The Bucks had a lot of the focus. 76ers, the, too. Yeah, the 76ers had a lot of the focus. And the Heat, they kind of just went about their business in silence. So I can see some merit behind it, which is also, I can say the same thing for the person that I personally think is defensive player. Triple J. Jackson Jr. Yeah. Like, he didn't, they, the Grizzlies didn't get that much media attention. I mean, the man, he led the NBA in total blocks. He led the NBA in blocks per game. He led the NBA in blocks and steals combined. He had, like, every defensive metric that you can think of, he was either first or second in those defensive metrics, but he didn't even receive, uh, he wasn't even in the final three. So I think he was very cheated because they, of those guys were more media um, darlings from the um, standpoint of, like, they had national games that still played a role in their um in their voting process. Yeah, the only candidate that I would disagree with is Utah and Rudy Gobert. But I think Rudy Gobert is just going to be listed as a finalist just about every year just because, I mean, he's, what, a two-, three-time defensive player of the year winner? I mean, he's he's always going to be in the conversation. But, all right, let's look at the other finalists for the awards that have not been selected yet. Uh, starting off with sixth man of the year, the finalists are Tyler Hero, uh, Cam Johnson, and Kevin Love. My vote would go to Tyler Hero, but what about you? Yeah, it's Tyler Hero. All right, moving on to Rookie of the Year. The finalists are Scotty Barnes, Cade Cunningham, and Evan Mobley. Of his um, of his candidacy, uh, Cade Cunningham said, I think I should be Rookie of the Year because of all the things I've been able to do for my team this year. I feel like I helped my team in a lot of different ways that may not have turned out to be wins. I mean, don't get me wrong. Cade had his moments, but I think Evan Mobley wins it. Yeah, it's Evan Mobley's award because he, he helped bring Cleveland back to a resurgence and almost got them into the playoffs. Yeah, I mean, and shout out to Scotty Barnes. I mean, he was the only player of the finalists to make the playoffs, but I don't think that he played some great games, but I don't think they were there because of him. And I think that's the biggest difference between him and Mobley. All right, let's look at most improved player finalists who are Darius Garland, John Morant, and DeJounte Murray. Uh, uh, I'm sorry. Uh, Draymond Green definitely felt some type of way about Jordan Poole not being listed as a finalist and said, if it's not Jordan Poole, I'm starting a petition on change.org to rename these awards. It's not accurate. To be fair, Jordan Poole did go from a G League player last season to having 17 games in a row with 20-plus points in the NBA. So, before we pick who we think is going to win of the options, do you think that the NBA messed up by not having Poole as a can as a finalist? Because I do. Most definitely. Like, the man was a guy that didn't get playing time, like he said, was a G League player, and now he's in the playoffs and won the and, – and had this drop like 30 in game two. So, yeah, that's, that's a travesty that he wasn't included in the finalist. Now, who would you replace him with? Because, yeah, like, because, like I said, the finalists are you got Ja, you got Darius Garland, and you got DeJounte Murray. Personally, I'm sorry. What'd you say? I was going to say it's easy who I'm taking out. Yeah. Honestly, I we, well, I'd I say Ja. Yeah, I was going to say yeah, ja. it has to be Ja. But I think, even though we both agree we would sub Ja for Jordan Poole, I think he ends up winning most improved player. Yeah, most definitely. But personally, I would go DeJounte Murray. I think what he did with the Spurs was really impressive. Because Ja's been that dude. Like, nobody came into the season not thinking Ja was not that cat. Yeah, he played on a more, like, heightened level and was getting a lot more media attention. But, like, you watch the Grizzlies, you know Ja Morant is, is that cat. All right, let's go ahead and look at Coach of the Year. The three finalists, Taylor Jenkins of the Grizzlies, Eric Spolstra of the Heat, and Monty Williams of the Suns. You know what? I know Monty Williams is going to win it, but shout out to Taylor Jenkins. Winning 52 games. You deserve it. Yeah, like, I know 
I know it's Monty's award to lose, but for my pick, I have to go to Taylor. Because, like, the Grizzlies were projected to maybe make it as a as a six seed slash potential play-in team, and for them to be the second best team in the West, and the sec- I think the second um, best record in the NBA total, yeah, it would have to be Taylor. But because they robbed Monty Williams last season, I know that they're going to give him this award this year. Which is fair. All right, now to the big one, MVP. The finalists are Giannis Antetokounmpo, Nikola Jokic, and Joel Embiid. I am still banging the drum on Joel, but I have a sneaking suspicion they're going to give it to back to Nikola. Yeah, I'm in the same boat. I think I'm banging the drum for Joel, but I think they're going to give it to Nikola as well. All right, let's go ahead and move on to a team that is not winning any awards anytime soon, and that's the Sacramento Kings. Uh, Boogie Cousins, a.k.a. DeMarcus Cousins, talked about his time with the Sacramento Kings and said, they sucked before I got there, they sucked when I was there, they sucked after I left. What did SAG do for me besides say my name on draft day? I did more for them than they did for me, just being 100% honest. I had two owners, three GMs, seven coaches in seven years. And he does have a point. It has been 16. The Sacramento Kings set a record for 16 straight seasons um, for the longest playoff drought in NBA history. In fact, the last time that they won a playoff series was 2004, whereas the last time the Seattle Supersonics won a playoff series was in 2005. So let's 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 look into our crystal ball. Let's predict the future a bit. Five years from now, <laughs> will we be able to say that the Kings made the playoffs? No. Yeah, I don't think so either. <laughs> I don't unless think so. They, unless they draft the next LeBron James, no. Yeah. Sorry about it. I just I don't see it. And even if even still if they draft the next LeBron James, who's I don't I don't think that's gonna happen. Like they're just such a dysfunctional and poorly run team. I just I have no real faith in them. I feel for I feel for De'Aaron Fox. I really hope he ends up getting traded. I thought this would be the year, but it seems that that is not the case. But all right, let's go ahead and move on to our game of believable or buffoonery. Let's talk some Damian Lillard, who over the past year has been banging the drum that he would not be requesting a trade, but in recent comments said that if the Trailblazers want to trade him, he would be accepting of it. He said... Um, If they came to me and they wanted to trade me, I'm not going to fight them on wanting to trade me. I don't want to be anywhere I'm not wanted, but I don't think that's the case. As I mentioned, it seems like it's not going to be Dame to decide to leave Portland. So, believable or buffoonery, the Trailblazers will be better off committing to a rebuild than trying to put a winning team around Damian Lillard. I think it's believable. I think that they... I think they had their run with Dame and CJ. They obviously have already traded CJ. I think now is just the time to commit to a rebuild because you, Dame is in the latter portion of his career. Granny, he's still a really, a really great player. He also is coming off of a um, substantial injury, so why not try to get what you can for him now and potentially build up your own future roster for a couple in a couple of years. Yeah, I'm in total agreement with you. I mean, I hate to play the they're not playing for anything card, but they're not. I mean, last season it was clear that they were tanking. You already traded CJ, who was your second best player. I feel like the best way to really go into a rebuild is just go ahead and trade Dane. You'll get the most trade capital for him. It may not be as much as it would have been a year ago had they traded him, but I feel like if you really are committed to a rebuild, you got to start from scratch. And it's very rare that you can complete a successful rebuild trying to hang on to your franchise player. At this stage, it's not working. I don't think that they, I don't think that they have the tools nor the appeal to draw quality free agents there. Nobody really wants to play in Portland. They don't think Portland's really playing for anything. And while Dame is great, you mentioned he's really on the last legs of his career. He's only got a few more years to play at the high level that we've gotten accustomed to see him in that. So now I agree with you. I would I would just take the L. I would trade him and get make sure he has a great package, um, a great tribute package whenever he comes back to play. All right, continuing on the conversation of point guards, we got to talk Kyle 
Kyrie Irving, who was pretty much fed up with Boston Celtics fans, and I don't blame him. Throughout the game, you could see him flicking off Celtics fans, going back and forth, and he touched on it in his post-game press conference after game one and said, when people start yelling pussy and bitch, there's only but there's only but so much you can take. We are the ones expected to be a humble. F that. It's the playoffs. And you know what? You and I both talked about it. We're not mad at it. Truthfully, I wish more players would have this mentality because fans kind of have this air of the players are just going to sit there and take it. There's nothing they can do. However, looking at the grand scheme of things, believable or buffoonery, Kyrie Irving is making a mistake returning the smoke to Celtics fans. No, I think he's making the right decision. Um, Because the reason he's doing it is like, showing people like, hey, you're not just going to be able to do this to me and I'm not going to do anything back. And he's doing it. Granted, yes, you know, the NBA final for uh, obscene gesture directed towards the crowd and profane language directed towards the crowd. But it's not like he jumped in the stands and started throwing hands with people. Right. So if you're like letting people know like, hey, I'm not going for this. I'm, a, I'm, pro, I'm pro that. Like, because fans, like, I've heard things that fans have said in games before. And it's like, bro, why are you talking to him like that? Like, it's a way that you talk trash and, like, calling people, um, like, calling people bitches and pussies and stuff like that. Like, that's not something that you do. Yeah, no. Like, especially, like, a lot of people, like, those words are trigger words for them. When they hear, like, they're ready to fight. And you have the protection of being, of being a fan because a player just can't. You call a, you call a player that they can't just run into the stands and punch you in the face. Right. So I I agree yeah. with Kyrie. Um, yeah, honestly, I don't have a problem with it. I feel like in terms of, like, the NBA, he's probably just going to keep getting fined. But, I mean, he's making several – million dollars a season I don't think that a $50,000 fine is gonna hurt him too much but I mean yeah I think it comes down to a respect thing like as I mentioned I feel like fans just feel like they can talk to players and treat players any kind of way and I I respect Kyrie Irving for being like nah you're not gonna do that to me especially in Boston because Boston has a rap on really getting on players we talk about Utah and Philly as fans who can get very disrespectful but Boston is Boston is in that same category as well and I'm sure Kyrie Irving has felt it more than just about anybody else particularly from his time being with the Celtics to when he first left it was a whole bunch of shenanigans so no I don't have any problem with it I hope he keeps doing it and if anything I hope that it inspires more players to do it not saying everybody like anytime a fan heckles them or boos them just start cussing them out but I mean like in instances like this where if you want to get used profanity with me or you want to get really disrespectful with me I can do the same thing back but in that same series somebody the Celtics fans are not booing is Jason Tatum who in the playoff series thus far has been looking really really good so much so that Kendrick Perkins said after his game one performance that Tatum has proven that he is a top 10 player in the NBA. Those that's a strong comment based off of just two playoff games, but believable or buffoonery. Jason Tatum has put himself in that top ten player discussion. Mm, no. I think he's on the cusp, but I don't think he's put himself in that discussion. Because I think I can right now I feel like I can name ten players that I still will take. I'm not gonna say I would take before Jason Tatum, but I think I could I can name 10 players that I think are currently better than Jason Tatum. Yeah, I'm going to say buffoonery as well. Like, in terms of the playoffs right now, yeah, sure. I would say he's top 10. But based off of the every single player in the league, yeah, no, I can't do that. But, I mean, who's to say that won't change? If he uh, helps lead the Celtics to a deep playoff run, hell, even a championship, then I think that he definitely has entered the chat in terms of that. But as of right now, I'm calling buffoonery. All right, last question. We're talking James Harden, who, as we mentioned, has been on a bit of a skid these past few games. But coming into this playoff series, he said, he didn't, he said, I don't have anything to prove. I don't feel any pressure. I don't feel any of that. He added, I just try to find ways to be the best version of myself I can be and bring a championship to Philly. That's the goal. Per usual, Charles Barkley had uh, comments about that to say, James Harden, you said you don't feel pressure. Man, you better think again. You got more pressure on you than any other player in the playoffs. So 
Believable or buffoonery, James Harden has nothing to prove during this current playoff run. Buffoonery, I agree with Charles Barkley. James Harden does have the most pressure out of anybody in the playoffs because James Harden is a perennial all-star. He's been a perennial all-NBA level player, but that's in the regular season. He's even won an MVP, but that's in the regular season. But when the playoffs hit, on numerous of occasions, James Harden has choked up and he hasn't performed. So I think he does have a lot to prove still in this playoff. I totally agree, especially considering not only do we kind of think of James Harden as more of a regular season player, but, I mean, even this regular season may have been the worst that he's had in about a decade. I mean, we're so used to James Harden being this automatic bucket and just being this guy, but this is probably the most inefficient that he has been throughout his career. And then on top of that, you have to look up what the 76ers gave up in order to get him. I feel like if, for example, the James Harden doesn't produce in the playoffs, but you see Ben Simmons have some sort of like career renaissance in this playoff run and help the Nets to a substantial run, maybe even a championship. Everybody's going to be looking at James Harden like he's crazy. Everybody's going to look at the 76ers like idiots for making this move. So, yeah, no, I'm I'm definitely calling buffoonery. I think James Harden has quite a lot to prove because you're supposed to be this guy. You pretty much begged to get out of Houston. You got out of Houston. You thought you are going to win a championship with the Nets. It didn't work out, and now you're in Philly. This is your next best chance to win a ring, and if he doesn't do that or if he doesn't produce, I think that is pretty much over for him being considered a top 10 player in the league. But that is our show. Thank you guys so much for listening. As always, Please sure to check out theexport.net. I repeat, theexport.net for exclusive sports content written by yours truly and fellow export writers. Previous episodes of our lovely podcast, our YouTube channel entitled The Export. Ethan, before we close this bad boy out, anything else you'd like to say? Man, go Grizz. You know, get the dub today. Uh, in the words of one job, job Moran, if you switched up, stay on this side. Big, big L's, big Memphis, you know. Everything going good. Yeah. Um, like I said, my Lakers are out of it, but I'm still rooting for the Grizzlies. Hope that they pull out a victory tonight, and then I think they play again on Saturday, question mark. That sounds about right. Um, either way, I hope they're able to pull out this series. So the next time we come in, we're talking about what they're going to be able to do in the second round of the playoffs. Um, and then for my NFL fans, specifically draft fans, my final mock draft will be coming out next week early, so be on the lookout for that because we're less than a week away. Well, technically a week away from the draft. I'm excited. I know you and I kind of talked about uh, what we the dream prospects we want our team to draft, but Ethan, I mean, you may not watch the first round or whatever, but who? what would be a perfect first round for y'all? What would just make you so happy to where you don't care what else you guys do the rest of the draft? What, what do the Titans need to do? Getting a Kobe Dean or a uh, Jamison Williams. That'd be nice. I don't know if Jamison Williams is going to fall to, I believe y'all are 26, something like that. I know you're late, mid, late 20s, but that that will be a blast. Baltimore, just, you know, you know how I feel. But, uh, yeah, thank you guys so much for listening, and we'll see you all next time. <laughs>